reading through the book of 1 Peter during our weekly Scripture reading. And this week we are in chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. I believe the words are on the screen behind me as well, reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Does it say wives or lives? Okay, I started to say, I was like, is this an error in the Bible? And my, you know, anyways, forgive me. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to you, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy." always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins." the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 
First off, I'm Pastor Rob, and uh, so glad that everybody is here with us today, all of our family and friends, visitors. It is good to be with God's people in the house of the Lord. All right, well, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to be finishing up the chapter today. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 33. All right, if you would join me once again in prayer before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your Son. We believe by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you're the Son of God. You died for our sins. You rose again from the grave. You and the Father are one. You have sent your Holy Spirit to come and to regenerate our hearts, to indwell us to gift us, to use us, to lead us, to comfort us. You've given us a commission here in this world to fulfill, to make disciples and to teach them, to baptize them and to, to continue on in this work until you take us home or until you return. We've gathered here today by faith, Father. We've gathered here believing that you are God that you exist, that you are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. So, Father, I pray that you would be pleased, that you would be blessed as we are here today for you. We've come to honor you. And we humble ourselves before your holy word, and we ask, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Thank you for your word, Father. We love you. We praise you. Please use me, your servant, and all of my weakness and all of my shortcomings and all of my insufficiencies. Lord, I pray that you would use me today, that it would please you to bless your people through me. And I thank you, Father, for this awesome task. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today we conclude the Upper Room Discourse or Jesus' farewell message, some people call it, and that is technically chapters 13 through 16. Now, in chapter 14, they actually depart from the upper room at the very end of chapter 14. If you'll recall, they are uh, celebrating the Passover. They're in the upper room. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Uh, he institutes uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, as we call it. And then Judas goes out to betray Jesus, and at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. Well, this passage of Scripture continues on through chapters 15 and 16, but it appears that it's actually taking place as they are walking along to the Garden of Gethsemane, which also makes sense when you consider Jesus teaching on, I am the vine, you're the branches. It's likely that they were walking through vineyards as He said this and directed their attention to vineyards there as they were passing by. Jesus was a master teacher, and I, uh, I could just see that. But chapter 17 is oftentimes lumped in with the upper room discourse, but it's actually something different. It's, it's an extended prayer. It's a prayer of Jesus. It is not the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's something that only John records for us. And that would truly be the Lord's prayer. That is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. We often call the, the prayer that is given in the Sermon on the Mount 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Lord's Prayer, but that would really be the disciples' prayer. So next week we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer in chapter 17. But tonight, or this morning, we conclude John chapter 16, and this technically concludes the Upper Room Discourse. Now, the last couple of sermons in John dealt with warnings. And so it was a warning passage, a warning to the disciples that after Jesus goes away, they are going to experience great difficulty. They're going to experience hatred from the world and persecution. He assures them that this is coming. But it was also mixed with words of hope. He said, even though I'm going away and the world will turn all of its hatred against me on you, I'm not going to leave you alone. I will send you a helper. The Holy Spirit will come, and He will guide you in all, all of this. And so really it was warnings mixed with hope, the hope of a helper. Well, for the, the remainder of the chapter, we're going to be talking about joy. Joy is the theme of the remainder of chapter 16, and I'm grateful for that because the last couple of sermons have been pretty heavy hitting. They've been pretty, uh, pretty serious, pretty weighty as we've been dealing with the issue of hatred and persecution. But now Jesus kind of puts a cap on this with joy, that despite the difficulty, joy is coming. Despite what they are about to go through that very night and in the coming days, joy is coming. They can be assured that there will be joy. There may be suffering, there may be sorrow, there may be weeping, but there will come joy. Now, joy is foundational to the Christian, and it is spoken of frequently in the Bible, and you know this. But as I was kind of walking through a lot of the different passages dealing with joy, I was so blessed to consider the different aspects of joy in the life of the believer and how the Bible deals with this issue. And so I just wanted to share with us a handful of scriptures just to kind of prepare our hearts as we move into this text regarding joy and the believer. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy in the presence of the Lord. Amen. And we experience that in this life as believers, as those who have been reconciled to God. But there will be an ultimate fulfillment to this. And there will be a joy that this world, we, cannot, we can't even begin to fathom. The kind of joy that we will have when we see Him face to face. Habakkuk 3.17 says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now that is, that's serious. That is maturity. As it pertains to knowing God and walking with God, when everything is going wrong, when everything in this life seems like it is falling apart, when it is all bad, still I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's beautiful, isn't it? And that is why we can have joy no matter what. 
we can have joy in any season because our joy is in the God of our salvation. Amen? Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Romans 14, 17, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Psalm 30, 4 and 5 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O His saints. Give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen? Praise Him. Of course, we know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. And so joy is so central to the Christian life. It is something that the Bible has so much to say about, and there are, were so many verses I could have taken us to, but I, I just wanted us to orient our hearts and recognize just how crucial this is and what a blessing it is that we of all people can have a joy that this world can know nothing about. It's ours in Christ. It's ours. And Jesus is giving the disciples that assurance, though things are about to get really bad, though it is going to seem as though all hope is lost, I want you to know that joy is coming. Joy is coming, and that's the assurance of the Christian. And so with that, let's turn our attention to John 16, verse 16. Jesus says, "'A little while, and you will see me no longer.'" And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, Jesus oftentimes speaks very cryptically. And I, I wonder why that is. I, I try to think through, why would he do that? Now, Jesus is a master teacher, as I said. The Bible calls him the Word of God, the, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. That is to say, he's the perfect communication of the Father. So, if he is the perfect communication, a master communicator, why is he speaking cryptically? And in part, I suppose, I can only, uh, you know, I can only come up with my theories here, but conjecture, but I suppose that he's trying to get them to think, think about what he's saying, and so that this is really going to stick with them, because they really agonized over what is it that Jesus is getting at here, and then Jesus is going to tell them, and this is really going to sink deep. It's going to sink deep. And so Jesus says that I'm going to be with you in a little while. You will see me no longer, and again, you will see me. So obviously, in the immediate context, he's talking about his death and resurrection. The following day, Jesus is going to die. The following, that very evening, he will be betrayed, arrested, taken off, falsely accused, condemned. The following day, crucified and buried. And so Jesus says that you will see me no longer, but then again, you will see me. Now, as I've studied into this and looked at various commentaries, uh, some agree that obviously that speaks of the immediate that's true for the disciples, but this also speaks of really the, the church age. Jesus is gone for a little while, but we will see him again. Now, it doesn't seem like a little while to us, does it? But in the light of eternity, the Bible says we're like a vapor. 
You know, here today, gone tomorrow. A day is as a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years as a day. And so Jesus is gone for a time, but He will return and we will see Him again. And that has to be our ultimate hope. That has to be the basis for our joy ultimately. Because the reality is we're never going to be truly satisfied in this life. Try as we may. There is satisfaction in the Lord. There is joy in the Lord. But we are not as we were when God created Adam and Eve in the beginning. And they were in perfect fellowship with their Creator. They forfeited that. Sin entered in. The curse came. The world was plunged into sin and corruption. And then we were separated from God But God, reconciling us back to Himself through His Son, is making all things new, and one day there will be a complete and total redemption and restoration, and we will know perfect joy and perfect peace. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we're living for. That's what we are to live for. Now, I want joy here and now. I want satisfaction. I want peace. There's nothing wrong with that. But honestly, I think we've got quite a bit of that. And I say that because I don't know that our hearts long for heaven as they ought. And I think that God would have us at times in a place of struggle and and hurt and you fill in the blank because we are meant to long for heaven. We We are to recognize that this is not our home and that things will never be perfect down here. And we are supposed to be those who are living for another city city whose, whose hands and maker are God. Nothing down here, right? And so I think as we get older, as we experience loss, as our bodies begin to break down, we, uh, we do. We begin to long more and more for our, our heavenly abode. And so Jesus says, you will see me no longer, but you will see me again. And we long for that day. Now, verse 17 So some of the disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So the disciples deliberate here. And again, I kind of picture in my mind them walking along uh, down, the, down the road through Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley, back up the hill to the Mount of Olives. And I picture that pretty well in my mind. I was able to go to Israel this last year, and so it, that was a blessing to essentially have some idea of what that would have looked like. And so you got 11 disciples as Judas is gone, and then Jesus. That's a pretty large group. And so Jesus is undoubtedly kind of leading the way, and I don't know if a few of the disciples are off to the side in the back of the pack there, or if they're all just kind of deliberating amongst themselves, and Jesus is just kind of standing there walking along, but they don't go to Jesus with the question. They start kind of questioning among themselves, what in the world is he talking about? What does this mean? For some reason, they were too afraid to go to Jesus and ask him, And so they figure, well, we need to try to figure this out amongst ourselves, you know. They want to be able to say, amen, Jesus, hallelujah. That's right. Preach it. Testify, Jesus. They don't don't want to just humble themselves and say, Lord, we don't get it. We don't understand. 
But Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was going on, obviously. And so verse 19, it says, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? I take comfort in the fact, and this is just a side note, Jesus knows, God knows. We can't fool Him, we can't try to figure it out. I mean, I take comfort in this because I don't have to pretend to have it all figured out. If I'm struggling, if I am doubting, if I'm even frustrated or, dare I say, angry with God in our weakness, we can all relate with that. And God's not surprised. Jesus isn't surprised by that. Jesus knows. So we can be real with Him. Amen? We can say, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, why? Lord, help me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, this doesn't make sense to me. What is the deal? We can be real with Him. Jesus already knows. That is the beauty of having an all-knowing God. And He knows when we don't know. And so, praise God, we can count on Him. And so, Jesus calls them out, essentially. He says, is this, is this what you are wanting to know? Is this what you guys are, are asking about? And so then he says, he begins to answer them. He says, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And so again, I'm, I'm sure they're probably not quite catching on to what's happening here, but Jesus is just going to unfold this a little bit more, a little bit more. So He said, I'm going away. You're not going to see Me. You will see Me again. I'm going to be gone, and the world is going to rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but it will turn into joy. So obviously, Jesus' enemies were convinced that they had won that they had him killed and that he was gone now. He would no longer be a nuisance to them. They would be in no threat of losing their position of prominence there in Israel. And so they celebrated. They rejoiced while Jesus' followers were crushed, devastated, absolutely devastated. And, of course, this speaks to the very period of time that we are in even now, as it seems as though the whole world has just turned crazy and hates God and even our nation, which used to be rather friendly towards Christianity, has turned totally hostile against it, and we're experiencing that more and more in the culture in which we live, the world celebrates. The world celebrates itself, it celebrates its own ideologies, but there will come a point in time when our sorrow will be turned into joy when our King returns and He rules and reigns in glory. The world celebrates now, and the, the church seems to exist here in weakness and frailty, but there will come a time when that will flip, that will switch, certainly and surely. Now, Jesus says that you will be sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, Jesus is going to go on here, and He's going to give kind of an illustration here. And this is a graphic illustration, but it's one that we can understand very well. He says in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so, again, with this idea of your sorrow will be turned into joy, he now uses the illustration of, of pregnancy and labor. He says there's this intense suffering that happens. There is an intense suffering that happens in the midst of labor. But when the, bo- uh, the baby is born, there's an intense joy that follows. Now, and that's amazing because the very thing that caused the sorrow and the pain and the agony becomes the very thing that causes the greatest joy and intensity of joy and euphoria even. And so Jesus is talking to the disciples here. You are going to go through intense agony because of my death, because of my betrayal, because of my crucifixion. But the very thing that is bringing you such sorrow will in turn bring you the greatest joy. And so our joy is secured by Jesus' suffering. And that is amazing. So I have you know, a number of points I'll throw at you guys as we walk through this. And there's, there's one for you right there for the note takers. Our joy is secured by Jesus' suffering. And again, this is amazing to me because Jesus is the one that's about to suffer. And he's talking to them about their sorrow. He's not even necessarily talking about his own. He's like, you're going to weep. You're going to lament. But your sorrow will turn into joy. But Jesus is the one who will absolutely suffer. He will absolutely suffer. And so our joy comes at Jesus' expense. Our joy comes at Jesus' expense. There's another point for you, if you like. Our joy is at Jesus' expense. Jesus will suffer in a way that is just unimaginable. It's, it's something that we just cannot comprehend in this life, and I don't know that we will ever comprehend it in a million eternities. That's why I like that old 90s song. It says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. We'll never know what Jesus suffered And that's kind of part of the point. Jesus did that so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus did that so that we would not have to. And Jesus endured the cross. He despised the the shame. But why? For the joy that was set before Him. For the joy that was set before Him, our Savior endured such intense agony. And the very thing that caused him to have to suffer us, our sinners, us as sinners, that's why he went there, would be the very thing that would give him intense joy and delight as we are born again, as we are washed, as we are cleansed, and as we are turned from sinners into worshipers. That would be the very thing that would turn his sorrow into joy. Isn't that amazing? That is wild. That boggles my mind. It's a joy that is preceded by agony. Agony, then joy. And that's how it is so often in the Christian life. That's how it is. We have times of trial, times of testing, times of being down in the valley. And it hurts. It's hard. It's a struggle to be in that place. And we want out from under it, don't we? We don't want to suffer, we don't want to sorrow. We don't want to be tried. 
We don't want to be in trials. We don't want to be stretched. But it's good. The light sooner or later does break through. Joy is coming. Joy unspeakable is coming. In this life and certainly in the next. Verse 22. He says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Man, amen to that. Amen to that. This is a joy that cannot be taken away. The joy that the Lord gives us is a joy that no one can take from us. It is ours. No one can take it away. And so that, that's a very important reality, and I talked about this earlier in Habakkuk. No matter what our outer circumstances are, we can have joy because we know whose we are. We belong to the King. We're His children. He has us. We're not going through anything that He hasn't allowed us to enter into. His arm is not too short that He cannot reach down and carry us in the midst of it, provide for our needs. So we are in His hand. So no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, we can have joy. Now, we do forfeit our joy at times. We could, I believe, have greater levels of joy, but we give up the joy when we give ourselves to sin. There are things that we can do that will threaten our joy, and that's what Satan wants. That's what he wants. I do not believe that Satan can take us out of the game altogether. I don't believe that we will lose our salvation. I believe we are secure in Jesus. And I believe that is the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures, that we are kept by the Savior. Saved by grace, kept by grace. If I couldn't save myself, what in the world makes me think I can keep myself? Right? Jesus said He will not lose one on the last day. He said, this is the will of the Father, that all He has given me, I will not lose one. I will raise him up. Is it possible for Jesus to not do the will of the Father? It is not. Perfect obedience. And so, as I often say, and I will say it again, the question is not, can we lose our salvation? The question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? And the answer is, no, He cannot. No, He will not. Jesus is our champion. He will keep us to the very end. However, that being the case... Satan, the enemy of our souls, would love to render us ineffective for the kingdom, destroy our testimony, cause us to bring reproach on the name of Christ, and he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to steal our joy. He wants to take that away. There is nothing more, there's nothing sadder than a joyless Christian, a miserable Christian, a bitter and complaining Christian, right? We are to be those who exude joy. And Jesus says, joy we have and no one can take it away. So let's not give it away, amen? Let's not forfeit our joy for lesser things. Let's not do that. Verse 23, it says, in that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. 
Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. It's amazing. This is a joy that is full, a joy that is complete, a joy that is robust. Now, Jesus said that in that day, whatever we ask in the Father's name is going to be given to us. Until now, we've asked nothing in Jesus' name. And so, it is because of Christ, it's because of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, it's because of who we are in Him that we can come expectantly to the Father because we come in Jesus' name. That's the idea. Based on the accomplishments of Christ, based on His merit, based on His worth, I can come to the Father because Christ is in me and I am in Him. And so the veil has been torn. We have access into the throne room of God, the throne room of grace, and we are invited to come in as children. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. That's why we say that at the end of our prayer. It's not a magic formula that goes on the end of a prayer. It's a recognition that, Father, I can come to you boldly because I'm coming in Christ. He has made me acceptable in your sight. And so through Him, I know I can come to you and that you will hear my prayer. You will hear my cry. And that ought to bring great joy. That ought to bring great joy. And that is a joy that comes to us through answered prayer. So I would say that's, that's another point. It's a joy that comes to us through answered prayer. Isn't it, isn't it cool when you pray and the Lord answers your prayer and you know it was the Lord? Does that not fire you up? The reality is God always answers our prayers. Always. He just doesn't always answer them the way that we would like or in a way that we even necessarily see or recognize. But the reality is our Father is attentive to our cry. Our Father is attentive to our prayers. We've been invited to come into His presence and to make our requests known and to come with faith, to come believing, and to recognize that the Father answers our prayers. But there are those times where we see it plain as day. There's no other explanation. The God of heaven has heard my cry and answered my prayer, and that brings such joy. It's exhilarating. And that's exactly what Jesus said. There is a great joy that comes from prayer. Your joy will be made full. Ask and you receive and your joy will be full. It's an abundant joy. That's the kind of joy that we have in Christ. It's an abundant joy. Absolutely full and overflowing. Amen? Absolutely full and overflowing. Well, look at verse 23. Huh? Sorry. Um, excuse me one second. Make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself here. Okay. Um, 25. Verse 25. It says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. 
but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask, and excuse me, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Man, praise the Lord. This is a joy that comes from love. This is a joy that comes from love. Now, Jesus says, in that day, in that day, whatever you ask in the Father's name, He will give to you. Ask the Father in my name. But He says, um, excuse me, I am actually struggling without my glasses here. Yikes. Um, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me. And so the idea here is that we can actually go directly to the Father here. So Jesus is our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I want you to hear this. Hear me. If I've lost you, look up here. All right? That was in honor of Charles Stanley. Look up here. Come on now. Look up here. Listen. Listen. Jesus says that, you know, we come through him to Father as our mediator, and there's only one. There's only one qualified to be our mediator, and First Timothy tells us that. There's only one, Jesus Christ. Amen? There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But Jesus goes even beyond that, and he says, you can now go directly to the Father. Jesus through the good news of the gospel, has reconciled us to the Father. We were enemies. We were separated from God, dead in our trespass and sin. But Jesus paid the price, and Jesus paid it all. Amen? And through faith in Jesus Christ, God, who was our judge, is now our Father, and we can come directly to Him as children. Look at that. That's what Jesus is saying. We can go directly to the Father now. Why? Because the Father Himself loves us. Because we have loved Jesus and believed that He came from God. This is extraordinary. This is absolutely extraordinary. Jesus says you can go to the Father. You can go directly to Him because He loves you. And why does He love us? Because we've loved His Son. The Father delights in the Son. This is the, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing in complete joy and glory and satisfaction and pleasure and unity. The love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Spirit, for the Father, back and forth as that, as that goes. We've been invited into that. We've been invited into that. The Father loves us because we love His Son. The Father has such a love for the Son that He loves anyone who loves His Son. Amen? And so we've been invited into this Trinitarian love. That is why God has created. That is why God is saving because God is good. God is loving. And God desires to pour out His love and His goodness on undeserving people such as ourselves by His grace. It wasn't because He needed us. It wasn't because He was lonely. It wasn't because He didn't want heaven without us. It was because He's good and He's been overflowing with love and joy from all of eternity and He purposed to share it. 
He purposed to share it. And so we are recipients of this eternal love and joy through faith in Christ. Because we love the Son, we have the Father, and the Father loves us. So we have a joy that is rooted in love. We have a joy that is founded and grounded in Trinitarian love. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now this is such a strange couple of verses to me. I don't frankly understand this, but they're like, Jesus, He says, look, okay, I came from the Father, I'm going back to the Father. And they're like, all right, now we get it. Okay, Jesus, You are the Son of God. And I'm just, uh, I don't, you know, that, that to me has always been a, a bizarre thing, the sudden, the sudden shift here. Uh, I, I don't know, I guess they've been really confused uh, Jesus has been speaking cryptically. He's been telling them. He's already said a few times that he's going to the Father. And, uh, you know, he said to the Jews where he's going, they can't come. And then he told his disciples, just as I told the Jews, I am now going and you can't follow. And then he says, I'm gone for a little while and you won't see me, but then you will see me. And they're totally lost. And then he says, okay, I have come from the Father into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And they're like, ah, we got it. So anyways, and then they say, and now we know that you know all things and need no one to question you. This is why we believe. And so I guess what's so strange to me about this is after having seen all that they have seen, this is the thing that they say is like, now we believe you. It's just bizarre. Well, anyways, verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. So this is a joy that is ours because of Jesus' victory. Because of Jesus' victory. Jesus overcame. Jesus overcame the world. As long as we're in the world, we're going to have difficulty. We're going to have trials and tribulation. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be persecution. But take heart. Jesus is our champion. Amen? He is our king. He has overcome the world. He defeated Satan at the cross, this world's ruler. He has defeated the the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day even the presence of sin will be eradicated. Jesus has overcome. And so we can joy in that. Thank, Thank the Lord it wasn't up to me to overcome. I I can't overcome this world. I mean, can, can somebody relate with me? I mean, how, how are you doing with that? You've been over, overcoming lately? I mean, life is hard. 
We've got struggles. The struggle is real. But praise God, Jesus overcame. Jesus overcame. And His victory is our victory. And in that is true peace, perfect peace. And He says that, in me you will have peace. I've said these things so that in me you will have peace. And so this is a joy that results from peace. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. We have joy. We take joy in the fact that our Savior has overcome. And we look forward to the day when we will be able to see Him face to face and experience that, that joy, that heavenly joy that is seeing Him face to face. The joy that we long for in this life. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Take heart. We have the assurance of joy. We certainly have joy in this life. I praise God for that. But we have the hope of eternal glory and joy that awaits us. Joy is certain. Joy is coming. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, praise You. Thank You for the joy that You have given us. Thank You that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Thank You for the joy that is ours in our salvation. We praise You, Lord. Help us to be those who exude this joy in the Spirit. It's a fruit, Lord, of knowing You and walking with You, being filled with Your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, even now, God, as so many of us may be struggling with discouragement or fear or regret or doubt or addiction. I mean, you know, Lord, you know the hearts of everyone in here. You know the struggles. You know the thoughts. We may be able to hide them from everyone else, but we can't hide them from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would pour out your joy in abundance. I pray that you would pour out your grace, that you would pour out your mercy and your love. I pray that if there's anyone in here today who up to this point has not known this perfect love, hasn't known this abounding joy through faith in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that they confess that they need you, that they need you, that they've sinned against you, they need your forgiveness, they need Jesus Christ, and that they would be born again, and that they would have abundant hope, abundant joy, abundant life through Jesus Christ. So, Father, we bless your holy name, and we praise you, Lord God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.